Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, Well, we are in a series uh, through Jonah. We're in the third week of that series. And what we're discovering is that this very famous uh, story in the scriptures has a lot more to teach us and a lot more to offer us uh, than a moralistic uh, lesson about obeying God the first time. Uh, So in week one, what we learned is that uh, Jonah disobeyed God's call to go and preach in Nineveh, and he ran the other direction. But it's not like he just kind of went to the next town. When he was called to Nineveh, he literally went the opposite direction as far as you could go uh, to the end of the known world uh, to try to get away from God's call. And, And he did that because he really couldn't stand the thought of a God who would have compassion on his enemies. Uh, Nineveh is the capital, or at this time was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, uh, the most violent and murderous empire the world had ever known up to that point. And so when when Jonah is called to go and preach the good news there, uh, he goes in the other other direction, uh, just having a difficult time uh, embracing the reality of a God who loves his enemies. And, And really what we learned in week one is that this story is written in such a way that we are invited to see ourselves in Jonah. And so we asked the difficult question of, is there any sense in which we ourselves uh, have trouble accepting a compassionate and merciful God toward people who we deem uh, enemies? Uh, last week, what we learned is uh, we looked at when Jonah is in the belly of the fish, and we learned that these moments uh, when we are literally at our lowest can actually be formative moments in our lives if we will wake up to the presence of God in them in order to form us. And, and so it really, we spoke about the presence of God, that the presence of God in our life isn't so much that God is, is sort of the chess master directing every single thing that happens in our life, and then we're just to accept that. Uh, But rather we learned that even in the moments when we go through hell, and the word that Jonah says is Sheol, it's the Hebrew word for hell. He says, here I am in hell, in the belly of the fish. And so we realize that as we go through these moments, uh, these hellish moments in our life, God is there walking with us through those moments. It isn't that, that God was responsible for Jonah's bad decisions that got him there in the first place, but rather now that those decisions have been made, Jonah is with him. And we, we put some nuance to that, that sometimes it's our own decisions, sometimes it's decisions that are out of our control, sometimes it's just circumstances that get us there, but we want to rest in the reality that God is with us and God can be forming us in the midst of those moments. Uh, and so this week, uh, we want to look at Jonah chapter 3 and just continue to discover the depth, the richness of this story, and all that it has to offer us. Uh, but before I read Jonah... Uh, the third chapter of Jonah, I want to remind us just kind of like what we're reading and what we're looking at. Uh, And that is that Jonah uh, uses this literary device called satire. Uh, That this is a very satirical story. Uh, And so satire is a a literary device where stock characters, just kind of like block, well-expected stock characters, are put in extreme or exaggerated circumstances And then humor is used in order to critique the human condition. Um, And so when we look at our own culture, like what is satire, what is satirical in our own culture, uh, you need to look no further than late night TV. (laughs) Uh, Late night TV is filled with satire, right? Uh, In particular, the the decades-long running staple of Saturday Night Live, which is the Weekend Update, right? Uh, Weekend Update is, is hilarious, 
Uh, it critiques uh, human condition. It critiques things in our culture by using humor, uh, and that is absolute satire. So if you know what Weekend Update is for Saturday Night Live, then you intuitively know what satire is. That's, what, that's exactly what it is. But what, what Weekend Update does is they will often put together sketches uh, that take these stock characters of culture and then use humor to critique that culture or a particular political party uh, sometimes as well. Uh, and so one, uh, one website put, defined satire in this way. It said, it is a creative genre in which criticism regarding a particular cultural behavior or other activity is displayed through the strong use of irony and sarcasm. So that's, that's satire. Uh, so what I want to do and want to invite you to do is look for the satire uh, in Jonah chapter 3, uh, but also maybe kind of remind yourself and look back of the satire that we've seen happening so far in the story of Jonah. So before I read Jonah 3, when we, first, when we last left uh, our rebellious prophet of God, uh, he had been uh, swallowed by the belly of the fish, or swallowed by a fish, ended up in the belly. Uh, he calls it Sheol, uh, and then in there he prays a prayer that is sort of like uh, a confession. He, he sort of repents, but never technically repents. Uh, but uh, at the end, he is then vomited out on dry land, and the people of God said, ew, right? So, so that's how it goes. Uh, that's where we're at. Jonah has just been vomited onto dry land. Uh, and then let's, uh, let's read Jonah chapter 3. It says this. Now, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, to which you're like, uh-huh. You betcha, after you've just been vomited, here comes the word of the Lord a second time. And he, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim, it to, to, proclaim to it the message that I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. You bet he did. Um, so after all that he's been through, you bet he did. Now, Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, uh, proclaiming this message. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Now, all of these things that seem really, really odd to us, these are all cultural signs of repentance. Okay? So right away, uh, this, this king is doing all of this stuff to physically show his repentance before God. So he sits in dust. Now, this is the proclamation uh, he issued to Nineveh. By decree of the king and all of his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. This was a huge deal for the most violent, murderous empire the world has ever known. Let them give up their evil ways and let go of their violence. For who knows, God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that, he will not, so that we will not perish. And then verse 10, when God saw what they had did and that they had turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. 
All right, so let's uh, jump into this. Uh, last week, we looked at what was called uh, Jonah's psalm. It, the prayer that he had composed was not just his own ideas or his own words, but actually psalms that he was quoting and then kind of making, creating a mashup with them. And, and so it came to be known as Jonah's, uh, Jonah's psalm. Well, this week, we're going to look at Jonah's sermon. And you've got to realize, like, this is, the, this is the pinnacle point of the story, Right? I mean, the story began, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach against this great city. So that's what we get in the first two verses. And now we're all the way into chapter 3, and we're just now getting to the point where that's actually happening. And so he's now in Nineveh. He's there to fulfill his destiny, to preach to this great city, this murderous empire. And so he goes a day's journey into this city that is three days' journey in. Or across. And so he's not quite yet halfway into the city. And so then he says this sermon. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And some of you are like, I think Pastor Andy could learn from Jonah in terms of the length of the sermons and what's happening there. Uh, I mean, it's just like in Hebrew, in Hebrew it's five words. I mean, this is like short and to the point and actually quite compelling and very, very interesting. Because listen, Jonah's sermon uh, is, is really interesting for the fact that all of the things that it is missing. Think about what's missing from this sermon. There's no mention of the sin that's being committed. There's no mention of how the wrong that they're doing, the oppression that is going on, how, how Nineveh as, as, and Assyria as this murderous empire is kind of frustrating human flourishing. They're oppressing people. There's like no details at all. No mention of the sin that's being committed or the wrong that's being done. And then furthermore, there's no mention of how to respond to what is going wrong or what to do. There's no like, hey, this is what you're doing wrong, and you're kind of frustrating the shalom that God intends for all of humanity. Uh, you're kind of working against human flourishing. And oh, by the way, the fancy theological word for that is sin. Uh, and, and so since you're doing that, here's what you should do. It's called repent. There's none of this. There's no mention of sin. There's no mention of repentance. Uh, and, and there's no mention of God, right? I mean, this is like crazy. It's, it's listen, um, I told you last week that I sometimes teach these classes for people who are in the process of ordination. And uh, last summer, I taught a preaching class. And, and let me tell you, if Jonah was in my preaching class, he would get an F. Man, there's no, there's no, like, this is a terrible sermon, right? This is, this is absolutely awful. Uh, and, and you really have to wonder if, if he's just giving a half-hearted effort here. Uh, and, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, Jonah, our rebellious prophet, really wants to, with his half-hearted sermon, ensure that Nineveh will, in fact, be destroyed. Right? I mean, you kind of think that. Like, it's a, a three-day journey across the city. He kind of goes one day in, eh, 40 more days, the city's going to be destroyed. And that's it. And you think, wow, Jonah, best effort there. Like, way to go, man. Uh, and, and so you kind of really wonder, like, is, is, are his motivations off, or what really is, is happening here? And, and actually, there's, there's, this, there's a brilliant turn of phrase in the narrative uh, that, that you may not get 
uh, in, in, in English. But, but here it is. Uh, he does, like when he says, uh, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown, is what the NIV says. Um, other English translations say overturned. Uh, and, and, he, and so it's like, here's the brilliance of the narrative. Like, he desires for Nineveh to be overturned. And one of the, one of the meanings of that word is that, you, that the city will be destroyed. And you kind of sense that that's, in fact, what he means. Like, 40 more days, and this city is, like, going to be destroyed. It's too evil. It's too murderous. There's, like, too much stuff going on. Uh, and so God is going to just, like, get rid of it. Uh, and, and so Jonah is essentially saying, like, you're, you're, you're going to get what's coming to you. Uh, you're going to be overturned. Um, and in fact, the city was overturned, but not in the way that Jonah had hoped. Because the other meaning for this word, like on one hand, this, this same word can mean destroyed, but this exact same word, overturned, can also mean churned over or transformed. Right? And so like this, this brilliant thing is like, Jonah is like 40 more days and the place is going to be overthrown, overturned, destroyed. And in fact, it was, but not in any way that, that, that Jonah wants it to. It was turned over. It was transformed. Now, I can tell that you guys aren't nearly excited about that as I am, but that's okay. <laughs> and so this is actually, so this is like precisely what happens, is, is that it is overturned in that it's turned over and transformed by this, this kind of half-hearted uh, message from this rebellious prophet. And so this, this whole thing is satire, right? I mean, this whole satirical narrative is meant to criticize Jonah for his selfishness and the way that he creates a caricature of everyone in Nineveh. And here's what I really want you to see and, and to understand. Like, Jonah runs in the opposite direction, doesn't want to have anything to do with preaching to this city. He has this experience inside the belly of the fish, but he never technically repents. And, and, and so then he's vomited onto dry land. He obeys God and goes and preaches, but he does it quite half-heartedly. Has his heart actually changed? No, it doesn't seem like it, right? It doesn't seem like it because he goes in and he's still creating a caricature that everyone in Nineveh is awful. Now, this is quite different, actually, from other sort of biblical stories uh, do you remember when God was, was saying, like, Sodom is just kind of, like, just totally run amok, and that city is going to be destroyed? And, and Abraham goes and says, hey, listen, will you please save this city? Like, if you, find, if you find this many righteous, will you save the city, God? Right? And God says, no, no. And then it's like, well, if you find this many righteous, will you save the city? It's like he, he's going to bat for the city. But Jonah's walking in, and he's like, listen, 40 more days, and this place is going to be destroyed, and get what's coming to you. Because he's kind of painted a picture, a caricature of everyone that they're just all evil because they're there. It's time for another poem. Have you guys enjoyed the poems based out of Jonah? Like, I've had a lot of fun with them. Uh, so here's another poem out of Jonah. This one's called Intercession. Abraham interceded for Sodom, but Jonah couldn't have cared less. If Nineveh had harbored one, relatively innocent inhabitant, or even 120. They all looked alike to him, seeing he hadn't tried to see them. But God's vision is better than 2020. Oh, come on, church. That's good, right? 
That's good. Listen, like, like they all looked alike to him, seeing that he hadn't tried to see them. He had created a caricature of an entire city, and the city, Jonah says, is huge. It's huge. It takes three days to walk across it. That's, that's like the way of saying this is a gigantic city. And here's Jonah with his half-hearted message, you're going to be overturned, and in fact, that's exactly what happens. Now, what this all shows us is that it shows us that God works despite his prophet, and he works in dramatic ways to turn over the city of Nineveh. Now, I did some viewing of SNL weekend updates, and I just didn't feel very comfortable about showing any of them in church to show you what satire looks like. And so I, I thought, what can I do about that? Um, and, and so I created sort of like, and, and like I'm not going to like totally get in character, but I created like a little news segment for SNL Weekend Update. Uh, and I wish it was like, a, I should have like worked ahead and like we could film it and like that would be like so great. But, but anyway, like imagine, imagine this. Uh, imagine this. This is like SNL Weekend Update that went something like this. Self-proclaimed prophet of God named Matthew Mark Luke went into the red light district of Las Vegas with this encouraging message. Before long, you're all going to hell. Miraculously, the entire red light district repented on the spot and gave their life to this prophet's God of love. Plans are already in place to convert the red light district into what will be the world's largest chapel. And you say, like, what is this supposed to show us? Like, what are we learning about the prophet named Matthew, Mark, Luke? Okay, brilliant, right? You, you, like, you always wonder, what do preachers do all day? This is what we do, okay? I'm just saying. Okay, so you're like, what are we supposed to take from this, this kind of satire? Well, are we supposed to take from this message that the prophet Matthew, Mark, Luke has an incredible ability to preach the amazing love of God? Or, or... Are we to learn that God's work in the place actually had nothing to do with the prophet? And from that, we can actually take two messages. Two messages. Number one, sometimes ministry is done with impure motives. I mean, Jonah walked, I mean, he was, on a technicality, he was being obedient to God. He walked into the city, not quite halfway, and it's like, hey, and then he preached his message. 40 more days and you're going to be overturned. Right? And, and so there's the, and I don't want to spend a lot of time here because this gets real personal. Uh, but it's like uh, there's this reality in, in which ministry can be done with impure motives. That Jonah was ministering, but he wasn't happy with the results. And we're going to talk about that next week. About like what happened actually to the city of Nineveh and how Jonah responds to it. But here's what I want to say. Like anyone with a microphone and influence, big or small, can get caught up in personal motives and motivations. Which is why in my own ministry, I try really, really hard to always be sensitive to my own motivations and just keep them pure. Um, but, I, but we just kind of like recognize that sometimes, sometimes ministry uh, can be done with impure motives. And I know that's not probably comfortable for us. It's probably not even comfortable for us to hear. And it's certainly not comfortable for me to say. 
but I think there's, there, there's this sense in which, like, just, just when someone has, just because someone has, a, like, a microphone, a platform, doesn't mean that they can be fully trusted, right? Um, there needs to be, like, fruit of the Spirit and some discernment and all of that kind of stuff going on. And, and that's often why they say that, that pastors have their most effective ministry in the long term, right? Uh, because they've had time to kind of build up trust and people to get to know them, those kinds of things. All right, so, so let's just like, like, like kind of drop that and then walk away. Um, so, so the second thing, <laughs> here, here's really where I want to focus this morning. The second thing uh, is that there is this reality in which God works among people and in places that we don't often expect. God works in people and among pla- in, and in places that we don't often expect. And, and I want to camp out here a little while. Um, like in Jonah, with the satire of Jonah, none of us are meant to walk away feeling like Jonah is just this amazing prophet of God, uh, regardless of what the children's books say, right? Uh, what children's books do is uh, they make the story all about the fish and they skip chapter four, right? So like in, in, in our own collection of, of the, the Bibles that we are reading on my kids, when you come to Jonah, it's like Jonah went in, uh, he didn't obey God the first time, but he did the second time, good job Jonah, and then he preached and the whole city repented, Jonah's the hero. Uh, but actually when you, get to, when you get to chapter four, you realize that Jonah's actually quite upset with the effectiveness of his own ministry. <laughs> In fact, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, when it says, uh, well, chapter 3 ends with uh, all these people repented, and then chapter 4, verse 1 says, uh, well, chapter 3 ends with God relented from his anger in, in destroying Nineveh. God relented from that and showed compassion on these people. And then chapter 4, verse 1 uh, says, and in Jonah's opinion, this was evil. Like, it was evil for God to show compassion. That's how chapter 4 begins. Uh, which is why you realize, like, all the children's editors are like, no, nah, I don't think we can really do that. Like, let's just end with Jonah being the hero and with God sort of relenting and showing compassion. Uh, but there's this sense in which, like, we're, we're, we're in no way, if we read the whole story, we're in no way meant to, like, come away with Jonah as the hero. But we're, what we're meant to see is that this whole satire has, has, has actually been a critique of God's rebellious prophet and, and some of his own attitudes. And so there's this, and it uses humor to do that, right? Like this guy got swallowed by a fish and survived. This is supposed to be just a little bit funny, um, right? Because all the scientists in the room were like, <laughs> that's right, because you can live inside of a belly of a fish. You're right, right? So there's this comic contrast so there's this comic contrast between Jonah's selfishness or rebellion and actually the pagan's sensitivity to the move of the Spirit and the work of God. There's this, this comic contrast happening throughout the book between God's rebellious prophet and the sensitivity of the pagans to the work of God and what he's doing. I mean, think about this. In chapter 3, the king of the world's largest empire repents, turns to God, and calls the people to turn away from their evil ways and their violence. I mean, this is crazy, right? Can you imagine the king of the world's largest empire repenting and saying, we're no longer going to use violence in our culture? That's crazy. 
right? But yet, here it is. It's, it's meant to create kind of this comic contrast. In fact, there's, in, in Jonah, there's this reversal of roles that reveals God at work in the most unexpected places. Here in chapter 3, the pagan king repents, along with the rest of the city and even the animals. Even the animals are repenting in Jonah, right? This is supposed to be funny. <laughs> this is supposed to be like a story that's larger than life. Even the animals, like can you imagine like your cat repenting? No, you can't, right? Maybe your dog, but certainly not your cat, right? You know, so it's like even the animals are here repenting and it's this crazy thing. And this exact reversal of roles happens in chapter one. I just didn't mention it when we were in chapter one because I knew we were going to talk about it today. Ha, that's the other thing that we do all day is plan these things out. So, Chapter 1, in the sailors, the sailors, you remember this? Chapter 1, Jonah's in the storm, in, the, in, the, in this boat, uh, and, and they're like, what's going on? In other words, like right away, they sense that some sort of divine activity is happening. That's why they cast lots. Cast lots, they, they cast lots to find out what's happening. Uh, that isn't a way of saying like, oh, this is how you discern the will of God, but rather it's a way of saying that they, they knew that there was some divine activity. God was up to something. God was doing something. And so they're discerning all of that while Jonah is asleep in the bottom of the boat. So already sailors who are supposed to be pagans are recognizing sort of the movement of God, the, the, the divine activity in the story, while the prophet of God is actually asleep in the bottom of the boat. There's this comic contrast between who is awakened to the Spirit of God and who is actually numbed to the Spirit of God. And it's meant to critique the prophet of God in this story is the one who's numb to the presence of God. I can see that you don't like Jonah as much anymore. <laughs> but that is precisely what the story is meant to do. It's a satirical, humorous critique of us. That's what's the whole thing. The whole thing is supposed to do that. And then what, what happens with the sailors? After they discern and tune into the divine activity with the Jonah, Jonah says, throw me overboard because, by the way, I'm a Hebrew and I'm a prophet of God and blah, 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 right? And so throw me over and it will end. And, and then they, what do they do? He's, remember this? He's saying like, like, this seems really selfless of him, but it's actually quite selfish because that's one way for him to further avoid going to Nineveh is for him to be thrown into the sea. And so what are the, but, but at first, the sailors don't do that. He says, throw me in the ocean and I will die and the storm will end. And the sailors, what they do? With greater, with greater strength and greater vigor, they try, to, they try to row out of the storm. When they finally find that they can't do it, there are no options left. They throw Jonah overboard. And do you remember what happened in chapter one? They repented and said, do not let this innocent man's blood be on our hands. They repented before God. It's a comic contrast between the sensitivity of the people who aren't supposed to be tuned in to what God is doing at all and the prophet of God who's actually become quite numb to the spirit. So I can tell this, this is like getting a little more personal, a little more uncomfortable. But here's what, here's what it does. It teaches us that when we live with such a binary mindset, here's what, here's what I mean by binary mindset. A mindset that says this is where God works and where he is present. He's, he, he works and is present among these people. And on the other hand, he works and is, he does not work and is not present among those people. That's a, kind of like this binary mindset. And when, what this teaches us is that when we live with that kind of mindset, we can miss 
where God is working in the world. Are you with me? Now, if you grew up in church, you're probably more likely to do this than others, but how prone are we to place God's work squarely among certain things and in certain people? Now, let's unpack this a little bit. Let's work on this a little bit and consider it first with the arts. How tempted we are to think that God can only work and, and speak truth uh, through movies and music that bear the term Christian. So we think that God is only present in movies like God's Not Dead, one, two, and three, Risen, or Facing the Giants, or any other ones, right? We think that this is, this is like the realm of where God is present, and God is working, and these are the films that tell truth. Now, I'm not saying that they don't tell truth. I'm saying that we sometimes think that this is the only place that the truth is told. And then, and then what do we do? Then we criticize and scrutinize any movie that bears our name but doesn't please us, like Noah <laughs> with Russell Crowe, right? Okay, some weird stuff in there, but some beautiful stuff too, right? And, and, and this is like a little late to the game because that movie's like three years old, but let me say, this is what your pastor thinks about Noah. I think it's a beautiful film with all kinds of truth. And does it follow the, the, the narrative of Noah ex- exactly? No, because that one guy didn't get on the boat and start causing a bunch of havoc. That's a Hollywood decision. But let's not write off the whole thing. Let's recognize some of the beauty in it. You see what I'm saying? So anything that kind of like bears our name, we criticize and scrutinize it. Uh, and then we, we kind of like limit the work of God into these particular things. And so we think that God is also only present and truth is only told uh, in songs like Oceans, Mighty to Save, Great Are You, Lord, one of my favorites. Um, or other songs that we see, sing in church, and then we criticize and scrutinize any group that's been singing our songs, but then signs with a secular label, uh, air quotes, intended. Here's what it is. The story of Jonah with satire and this reversal of roles wants to shake us out of this narrow view of God's work in the world and wake us up to what God is doing, Right? Now, I knew this would be a tough message because it's like, it's like looking in a mirror, right? It's meant to be a critique of us. The people of God who narrowly define the work of God in the world. That's who this story is critiquing. And so I knew it would be tough, but let's, let's keep going. Here's the, here's the problem with sort of this binary mindset. This is where God is at work. Uh, among these people, truth is told. God is, doesn't work. It's not told. Truth is not told over here among, among those people. Or, or those things. Uh, here's the problem with that. God is creator. And if you affirm that, then you affirm that creation and art reflects him. Now, even if the, even if the art is totally perverse, of which there is pl- are plenty of examples, like completely, utterly perverse art, it is a distortion of the image of the creator. You see what I'm saying? If God is creator then God is the source of all things that are good. All things that are not good are a perversion of that which used to be good. And if, if in other words, so, many, so much perverse art is pointing us to something that we need to be fulfilled, that can be fulfilled in God, in Christ, but it's meeting that need in illegitimate ways, and then it becomes perverse. But it still bears the image of the creator because it's pointing us to something that we need by which God can fulfill. Are you with me? Some of you are with me. Some of you aren't. That's okay. We'll keep going. Okay? I know this is hard. 
What this means, though, is that God can work in and truth can be told in lots of art that doesn't bear the label of Christian. Singer-songwriter Derek Webb says this, the term Christian, when applied to anything but a human being, is a marketing term. Okay? And, and sometimes helpful, points us kind of in, in good directions to discover good things, sometimes not that helpful, because sometimes things that bear the mark of Christian aren't that Christian. Okay? I didn't think I'd get any amens there. That's okay. And here, so here's what I want you to realize. God is also present and working, and truth can also be told in movies like Ben-Hur and Wonder and Silence and Crash. Two of the four are rated R. <gasps> okay? But truth can also be told. I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. I will never forget. I will never forget watching Crash for the first time. I mean, that movie, that movie, I can't even call it a movie. It's a film. That film hit me like a ton of bricks with two truths. This rated R film with all kinds of language hit me with God-inspired divine truths. And it was, number one, the interconnectedness of our lives. That whatever we think about us being sort of an island and not affected by other people or us not affecting other people is, is just no way. It's not true. It hit me like a ton of bricks. The interconnectedness of our lives, and listen to this, my own racial bias. I remember watching the film crash and, and coming head to head with my own racial bias. I had grown up and still am. White, male, middle class. I'm the top of the pecking order. You don't get more privileged than me. And I watched that film and I realized that I had been carrying with me my entire life all kinds of racial bias. And through that art, God spoke to me. See what I'm saying? God is present and and at work in, and truth can be told in, arts that don't bear the label of Christian. Or how about uh, Wonder? I talked about that a couple weeks ago. Wonder with the, just the, like the revealing the beauty of humanity. Uh, The new Ben-Hur. I haven't seen the old Ben-Hur. I'm sorry, Rick. I still not have not seen the old Ben-Hur. I'm working on it. Uh, I, I just talk about the new Ben-Hur, and every time, like, Rick comes up to me, he's like, you got to see the old Ben-Hur, and I'm like, I'm working on it. But the new Ben-Hur, the story of reconciliation, is one of the most distinctly Christian films I have ever seen. I mean, just, just like, it's got Morgan Freeman in it, and the whole nine yards, the most distinctly Christian film I have ever seen, the new Ben-Hur. I mean, I, I, the first time I watched it, I was, I was weeping like I have not wept in, in a long, maybe in my life. I mean, I was literally in the theater just like shower, showered in my own tears. And Amy was like, uh, this is not normal. What's going on? I'm not quite sure what to do right now. I, this has not happened before. Like she was like not sure what, what, what to do. So it's just kind of like one of those moments where like put your hand on the back and just, just wait it out. <laughs> you know? Like, you're all right. We're going to make it through this. I don't quite know what this is, but we're going to make it through, you know? <laughs> it was just like one of those moments. And so 
there's this, there's this beauty, this, this divine edge of stuff if we will open our eyes to the work of God. And the critique is how easy it is as the people of God to become numb to how God is working in the world. So God can work in and truths can be told through songs like I still haven't found what I'm looking for or the entire U2 catalog or uh, Everything Now by Arcade Fire and dozens and dozens of more songs that are just like this. there's this truth that is present in them. So that's the arts, or let's talk about in those people, often the most unlikely people, and the most unlikely of places can be receptive to the work of God. When the people of God who are in the most likely places, and the most likely to people are, are actually the most resistant to the work of God. And that there can, be, there can actually be a powerful movement and culture that, 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 wonderfully and per, that is wonderfully and perfectly in line with God's truth. And, and sometimes the church can become so numb to that because it didn't find its source in, in church culture or Christian culture that we reject it. Let me give you an example. Some of you are like, oh, he's about to get in some territory right here. No, this is really safe. Uh, let me give you an example. <laughs> let me give you an example, right? When the culture and the world started waking up to environmental care, like, this is perfectly in line with God's truth and God's design and plan. And, and like, when that happened, the, the, like, I, I remember having this moment as a person of God saying, oh, man, the church should have led the charge on this. The church should have been the prophetic voice saying we ought to care for God's creation because actually that's our first human vocation. The first human vocation, way back in the garden, God, God says to Adam and Eve, I have made you in my image. I rule over all of creation. And now I am asking you to rule over creation as I would. Bear my image in this place. I've made you in my image. Now image me to the world. And I, it just like breaks my heart when like, because it didn't kind of come out of the church, people in the church resist that and say, oh no, you know, we shouldn't do that. Or we shouldn't, like I'm against recycling. You can't be against recycling, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, that's right. You can't right. Hey, I'm getting some amens today. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can't be like against it. It's, how is this possible, right? So, so that's that's one example. That there. So, so let's let's be careful not to say that God can't work in those people. Um, oh man, I gotta hurry. Okay. Or how about this? God in our people, like the work in our people. God. Can we learn to see God in, at work in people who profess his name but are different from yourself, right? So like maybe they profess God's name but they're kind of outside of your camp. Can you see God working in there? Because God can be found in a diversity of voices. And it's really easy for us, it's really easy for me to get stuck in an echo chamber of people that I agree with and people who are like me. And so something I've been trying to do is just recognize that Christianity is bigger than what I've experienced in my life. And so I'm trying to open myself up to voices that are different than mine. Let's start with, are you a different gender than me? And you're a theologian, I need your voice. Is your skin a different color? Let's start listening to that. Uh, are you, do you come from a different economic status? Uh, is your orientation different than mine? You see what I'm saying? Like just a diversity of voices. And I'm not saying you have to agree with everything, but I'm saying that we can begin to see God at work in all these different places. The author and pastor uh, Brian Zond, who I quote often, he says this. He says, I love this. Uh, I'm like put on my radio voice for this. He says, orthodox mystery, Catholic beauty, 
Anglican liturgy, Anabaptist theology, Protestant audacity, evangelical energy, Pentecostal reality. We need it all. That's good, right? Because God is at work in the whole. I think, I think my point is clear. <laughs> and so here, here's what I'm saying. Jonah can be a really humbling story because it because the critique is on us. And so my invitation today is to humble ourselves before the Spirit of God and say, God, would you give us eyes to see where you are at work in the world no matter where the work is being done. And so, I want to read the poem again. Abraham interceded for Sodom, but Jonah couldn't have cared less if Nineveh had harbored one relatively innocent inhabitant or even 120. They all looked alike to him, seeing how he hadn't tried to see them. But God's vision is better than 2020. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together to turn our attention to your word and to be challenged. This is a challenging word today, God. And it, uh, man, it flies right in our face, to be honest. <laughs> but God, help us to recognize the truth as it is revealed in Jonah. And may we be a people belonging to you who... Do not become numb to the movement of your spirit, but are alive to the work that you are doing in the world. And so God, give us eyes to see. Give us discernment and wisdom to discern so that we might look at the world and see it through a theological lens and celebrate the good work that you're doing. Because ultimately, God, that's what we want to do. We want to celebrate your work. We don't want to just recognize that you are at work. We want to do that, but we want to celebrate it. And say, oh God, tune us in to your spirit. Tune us in to the ways of doing life that would be pleasing to you. God, we recognize that all of this kind of language found its fulfillment and culmination in what Jesus called the kingdom of God. God, release us from understanding that the kingdom is something that's only for the future or something that only communicates the body of believers. Yes, it is that, and it communicates that, but God, it is so much more. The kingdom of God is where you reign and rule in the world, where you are bringing things about that are pleasing to you and introducing new ways of doing life and relating to one another. And so God, help us to proclaim and embody the kingdom of God. And Lord, as we gather around this table, we, we pray that our hearts would be open and sensitive to you, to the work that you've called us to. God, we love you. Speak to our hearts today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.